I don't know how else to say this, but today we've got a kind of a double whammy day. I mean, we've got rain and you lost an hour of sleep. But what that tells me is that we've got the really holy people at church today. You guys really care and love Jesus. So we, we just ought to go home, right? We, we don't have anything else to learn. That's uh, probably not true. But that's, I mean, I, man, I so appreciate that you guys are here today because it really is. It's a, it's a small church's worst nightmare. Two, two whammies in a day that will just drive attendance. And we're not all about attendance. We still worship. We still love Jesus. We still get together. But you guys showed up because this is important to you, and I, I just wanted to commend that in you. So anyway, let's get started. Um, actually, before we do, let me let you know this. I think Amy wants me to shake the egg today. She left this here for me, so we'll get some rhythm going. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not about to even show you how bad I am. But let me tell you this. We, for two weeks, we took up collection for Ibrahima. Uh, he's, the, he's the missionary we worked there with, the translator we worked with in uh, Africa, and I just wanted to let you guys know what we were able to do for him. We, we needed to raise $575 for him. We've raised $880 that we're going to send him and bless him and his family with. He will be able to provide for, fix his house. He'll be able to finish his bakery, and then his family will be blessed. That, the extra money that he will have will go so much farther than we even know. It just is so different for him. And so... Man, I am so proud to be a part of things like that. I'm proud of our church for caring enough to do that. And so, I, again, I just want to commend you and thank you for letting God use you and, and, and encourage you to be generous. But today, in our message today, we're going to be in John. It's our fifth word from the cross. We're in John. Um, and, and it's really going to be kind of building out of last week. Last week, we dealt with... It was really heavy. I mean, it started. I tried to start it out light and make it kind of easy to deal with at first, but then it got really heavy really fast. And really today, we're going to start right in the midst of that heaviness again. But then by the end, it's going to be light, and, and, and you're going to feel the sweetness and the beauty and, 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 the, and the precious, the, I don't know what to even call it, this precious story of the gospel and, and what it does in our lives. And so I'm looking forward to it, and, and I hope that it will be a blessing to you. But let me just start here. Did you know, I mean, just, just to get in our minds, just the reality that there is something wrong in our world. I mean, there's something obviously wrong with the places we live. Did you know that in, in, the, in the world right now, in, in all of the world, there are nine conflicts going on right now, today, that claim at least a 1,000 lives per year. Some of these conflicts have been going on for many, many years. The conflict in Burma began in 1947, and since that time, 210,000 people have been killed as a result of the conflict in Burma. 12,000 of those were just this last year in 2012. The Somali, the Somali Civil War, it began in 1991. Over 500,000 people have been killed since it began. And then the conflict in Afghanistan. You know, the war in Afghanistan that we've been a part of, it didn't wait for us to show up to begin. There has been conflict in Afghanistan since 1978. It's been a, been a, been a, a war going on. And since it began, 1,845,000 people have been killed. Over 8,390 of those were killed in 2012. Now, United Nations, it, it doesn't just keep track of, of these conflicts that are big and claiming lots of lives. They also keep track of 
of every conflict that, that there's a loss of life over. And these conflicts that they're tracking uh, that, that are lower than 1,000 lives per year, there's 36 of those currently going on somewhere in the world. 36. And these, the, the, the oldest conflict on that list falls into this category. It's the Kurdish separatism in Iran, and it started in 1918. People just can't get along. Since 1918, they've been disagreeing and fighting. And since that time, 34,000 people have died as a result of this conflict. One of the more recent conflicts, maybe you've heard about this. Uh, I've met some missionaries that were dislocated because of the conflict in Mali that began um, last year. Well, since it began, uh, since the beginning of 2013, 400 people have died. Uh, 400 people because of this conflict that's going on in Mali, because of a because of ruling governments, not uh, or, or a desire for freedom, I guess. I took these reports and I combined them, and I took all of the forty-five conflicts that are listed. And in our world right now, the conflicts that are going on right now, since they began, nine million, they have claimed the lives of nine million five hundred seventy-two million or nine million five hundred seventy-two thousand seven hundred ninety-one people. That sounds like a lot to me. But that's really nothing in comparison to what happened in World War I and World War II. You put those together, 76 million people. World War II was like 2.5% of the world's population died in World War II. That's pretty big. But the testimony of those 9 million is no less silent than those 76 million when it comes to pointing us to the fact that there is something desperately wrong in our world that we would fight one another to the death. There's something wrong. It's not just wars that we fight. Did you know that in from 1338 to 1351, the bubonic plague killed an estimated 100 million people. One illness, one illness, an estimated 100 million people. In, in 1918, the Spanish flu killed an estimated 75 million people. And we're escaping that kind of stuff because we've got our medical uh, technology and we've, we're so smart, right? The HIV and AIDS pandemic in the world, it's worldwide. It's not an issue in just one country. 34 million people are currently living with HIV and AIDS. It's claimed the lives of nearly 30 million people. This is still a real-world problem. You know, we, we feel fortunate maybe because we never got the bubonic plague. That sounds terrible. I, I'm just going to tell you, I wouldn't want it. It sounds bad even. But we're still fighting these problems. we got no control over this. we got no ability to... To, to take this and, and get rid of it. 34 million people currently living with it, managing it, but still dealing with the problems of it. There's something obviously wrong in the world in which we live. In recent years, we've suffered tragedy even closer to home, a question that inevitably gets asked whenever we suffer. Things like, I don't know, a man going into a movie theater and shooting a bunch of people. 
or someone being evil enough to plan an event horrible and horrific enough to fly planes into two buildings, or even a, a man so demented and wrong that he goes into an elementary school, the, the most innocent among us, at least in our perspective, into an elementary school begins to kill children. A question is inevitably asked. Where was God? In fact, this is such a popular question, CNN picked up on it, and they wrote a blog. Where was God when Stony Brook, or Sandy Hook, I'm sorry. Where was God when, when the massacre of children was occurring? What was he doing? Had, had he left? Had, did, was he not paying attention? Did he not care? Well, That's not a new question. In fact, this is a question that has been asked over and over and over for centuries. For some people, it's the, it's the question they fear the most. It's the question they seem at least ready to answer. Oh, they think they got you when they bring up the question of suffering. Well, hey, if God loves people so much and if God is all-powerful and if God is so good, why doesn't he just remove evil from the world? Well, my good friend Lecrae, he would tell you that he'd have to remove you too. He's not really my good friend, but I'd like to throw that out there. <laughs> you guys are all like, really? You know? <laughs> I saw your eyes get big. And the reality is, is that he'd have to take us out too, right? That, I mean, that's a real good answer. But that doesn't solve the problem a lot of people have. Because they don't recognize their own evil. They demand that they're good. I'm a good person. That's not a new question, though. And it's not going to be a question that stops being asked when people deal with this problem. But here's the beauty. Here's the beauty of what we're going to study today. Here's, here's the answer, I think, that, that, that helps us see that God doesn't just walk away when suffering begins, that God is not complacent, or that God doesn't care that we hurt and we suffer in this world. I think the answer is in the cross. And I think we see it as we hear Him cry out the words that He spoke. From the cross. You see, the reality is, is that at the cross, at the cross, we meet the God who suffered for us. We meet the God who suffered for us. This is the only religion, this is the only teaching, this is the only place you're ever going to find a God who cared enough to involve himself at the level that he would actually allow himself to hurt. See, the answer to suffering is at the cross. And I think that's really what this fifth word, the word of suffering, teaches us. We're going to be in John. It's going to be in chapter 19, verses 28 through 29. Let me just read these to you. It says, when Jesus, I'm sorry, <laughs> that was the last one. After this. Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. After this, Jesus had been hanging on the cross. He'd been suffering all day. In the moment that this is speaking about, it's pointing back to the point where he speaks to John and to his mother. And he says, woman, behold your son. And he says to John, behold your mother. After that happened. But there was other events. We know because we studied another one last week. 
when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we began to see the spiritual suffering, the spiritual anguish with, which weighed upon Jesus while he hung on the cross. But after this, after Jesus had been beaten with a, with a Roman flagrum, after the fact that he had been beaten upon his back, and, and the reports of that are so intense, the reality is that many people died because of these beatings. What would happen is these, these Roman whips, they had, had many t- tentacles or, or strands, and at the end of them was tied bone and shards of metal. And the, the, the guards would whip the, the person being, being flogged. And the, 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 the shards of metal and the bone, they would attach themselves to the body and they would yank them out. And in many cases, the insides, the stuff that's inside of us fell out because it would go on for so long that the skin no longer did its job, the muscle no longer did its job, and the innards came outwards. That's the reality of the beating that he endured. And he had, he had been mocked and laughed at, spit upon and smacked across the face. And they had taken a, a crown of thorns and pressed it upon to his head. And the r- reports are, we don't know exactly what they used or exactly what it was that they used to make the crown of thorns. But the reports are that the thorns were probably somewhere around an inch long. And if that's the case, can you imagine what that feels like it's, as it's raped down upon your head and you feel the thorns scraping your skin and digging into the bone. He's been suffering after this. After this, after the moment that they had him drag his cross through the streets of Jerusalem, after the moment in which they laid him upon the cross and they nailed him there and they put a, a nail in each hand and a nail through his feet. After this, after when they the moment that they hung him up and he looked around and rather than crying out and screaming curses, he prays for forgiveness after that. After the moment that he hears a repentant thief and he promises him salvation after that. After he looks upon them standing around and and ridiculing and, and guards gambling over his clothes after that. After that moment, when he looks at his mother and his disciple and his affection for them is so real and rich that he's concerned about them even in the greatest moment of his suffering. After that, after he endures the anguish, and and we don't know the depth of this and we don't know the the full breadth of this mystery, but after that moment when Jesus is, is looking to his Father and sees his back and feels that disconnection and that disunity that he's never known in all of eternity, after that moment, he finally comes to this place where he says something about himself. And thinks of his physical need. Maybe, just maybe, I mean, I don't know, but maybe we would have been thinking about that first. Hey, I need to say something. Give me some water. No. And so and the reality is this, is that we know, we know that it was difficult breathing. We know that these people that hung on these crosses because of the medical, medical advancements, we know that they were, that they were suffocating and every breath was a gasp. So there's no doubt that this thirst was real and it was burning on him. But after these things, when he knew everything was accomplished, 
to fulfill the scriptures. He says, I thirst. And in some way, another chance to ridicule him, they bring to him sour wine. It would be like drinking vinegar. It's not something we pick up to drink usually. Not something that's going to satisfy or quench a thirst. Not something we're going to take big gulps of because we are just so parched. They rub it on his lips and they allow it to wet his mouth. In this moment, in this, in, in this moment, we see Jesus. We see Jesus' divinity revealed. I'm sorry, let me, let me give you the first point. I'm so excited, I've just blown past the whole section of what I want you to see. Jesus' thirst was the result of a premeditated plan. I don't want, I don't, I don't want to sell this to you in such a way that you, you, you are as emotional as I am in this moment and, and thinking, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that he waited till then. Certainly, he did. Certainly, he had every right to complain before that. But this is not some emotional decision on his part. This thirst, this moment as he hung on the cross was the result of a premeditated plan. This tells us Jesus was never out of control. Never out of control. Psalm 69, 21, written generations before Jesus came, written way before he took his first step, written way before the moment that Mary was told she was pregnant. It says, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. You know, we, we feel like premeditated murder, that's worse than just somebody that gets angry and kills in the, in the, in the moment. The reality is this, is that this teaches us, this thirst, this moment, these words that John gives us, this teaches us that this moment had been planned for a long, long time. Jesus was meant to suffer this way. And it's not the only element foretold of the crucifixion. I mean, if you know anything about it, you know that there's plenty of messianic prophecies that pointed to Jesus. Some people count over 600 messianic prophecies from the Old Testament. But just dealing with this crucifixion, it said, you know, Judas' betrayal of Jesus. That was, that was one. That was a big one. Psalm 41.9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jesus silenced before his judges. Isaiah 53.7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that's before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Even the soldiers gambling over his clothes, even that detail, a detail that they obviously had to be doing on their own that, that, that could only be known would happen. This wasn't Jesus making it happen. These soldiers were just doing what they did. Generations before, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus was there in this moment thirsting because he always intended to be there. This plan was set before the first the first command for light to shine. First Peter one, eighteen through twenty. 
In hindsight, Peter has, has met the resurrected Lord. He's walked through, through denial. He's walked through his struggles with his mouth. And he has met the resurrected Jesus. And he looks to this suffering church and he writes to them and he says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. He was known before the foundations of the world. The reality in the, in the original language, you can see that what this means is that this day, all of his work, the things that he endured, they were planned for him before the first command for light to shine. Before God said, let there be light, before he took dust and formed it into a man, and before he took the rib out to form the woman, before he took the, the chaos that ensued before the creation work began, before, before the Spirit was hovering, hovering over the water, before he looked at the elements and began to formalize and organize them, before any of that began, Jesus knew this day was coming. And like I said, I, I, you know, we deal with premeditated murder. We think it's worse. But I think this should point to us not to think it's worse, but to think it's more special. God knew who we were. God knew what we would do. God knew our rebellious hearts. And He loved you anyway. He loved you anyway. He sent Jesus anyway. And Jesus' thirst reveals His divinity. I don't want to deny that Jesus was really thirsty. I, don't, I, I think that that would be foolish. I think He was probably really, really thirsty. I, I can only imagine hanging on that cross, what, what that was like. I don't know that I've ever been close. The closest I've been to feeling just parts like if, if I could just put anything on my mouth. I, I mean, I was so thirsty, I thought that it would probably evaporate before I could swallow it. I was doing some army training. We were doing escape and evasion training and walking through the woods, and it was a hot day in Kentucky. We'd run out of water, and we didn't have any kind of way to filter water. We didn't have, actually, there wasn't even a creek around to filter water from. It was, it was hot. It was late in summer, and the, the creek beds were dried up. And we were supposed to be acting as if we were a, 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 an air crew that had been shot down. So we were carrying all of our gear because we had top-secret stuff that we couldn't abandon, or supposedly couldn't abandon. It was all part of the game. The most realistic training I had ever gone through. By the time we got to the end of the day, I thought, man, if I don't get some water soon, I may just pass out. I was dehydrated. And I wasn't the only one. Our flight, my flight crew was too. I, mean, we were, I was in good shape then. That was back in the day when I actually moved and exercised. It, was nor, you know, I was in, it wasn't, wasn't like I was suffering because I was a fat guy. I was suffering because it was a long day in the woods. It stunk, man. It stunk. And so these pathfinders, they come in in this Blackhawk, and they come in and they drop a rope out. They speed rope in, and they come into the woods pointing guns at us and getting our IDs and knowing who we are. And then they give us water. And that moment when that water touched my mouth, whoa, that was so sweet. It was hot water, but it was so good because my mouth was dry. I don't even think that comes close to comparing what it is to hang on a cross. 
and gasp for breath for hours with no relief. And there he is. And in that moment, Jesus' thirst, I think, reveals his divinity. And here's why I think it does that. Jesus, Jesus had a divine knowledge of all that was going to happen. John was able to look back and say, you know what? You know what? Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew all that needed to be done had been accomplished. He knew that this was a prophecy that spoke of him. He had this knowledge that was beyond himself. He knew that he needed to, in this moment, ask for this drink or to say these words, I thirst. He knew. This isn't the only time we see Jesus do that kind of thing or demonstrate his knowledge. He told his disciples repeatedly, I'm going to die. Sometimes his disciples didn't get it. One time they did, and Peter said, no, we never let that happen. He said, get behind me, Satan. He foretold Peter's denial. Peter is going on about how tough he was, and I'll follow you to the grave. And Jesus looks at him and square in the eye and says, you know what, you're going to deny me before the cock crows three times. Before tomorrow morning, before the sun comes up, you're going to deny me three times. Own it. Deal with it. And it happened. Peter, when it did happen, he recognized, oh, he recognized, and, and he, he saw it, and he cried, and he felt the conviction. And Jesus knew it was coming. He foretold of Judas' betrayal. He knew, in fact, he sent Judas out to go do what he had to do. At that last supper, Jesus knows Judas is there. Jesus knows Judas has a mission. Jesus knows the time is coming for Judas to do his thing. He says, you know what? Go do what you have to do. Judas goes. Later that night, it comes true. Judas shows up with the, with the temple guard in the midst of this garden, walks up to Jesus, kisses him on the cheek. Jesus, you'd betray me with a kiss. And Jesus knew. He knew the hearts of men. He knew that he couldn't trust himself to them. He knew these things. And the scripture shows us over and over and over that Jesus had this divine knowledge. In this moment, on the cross, we see that it's not just a mere man hanging there, but it's our God hanging there. Remember where we started. At the cross, we meet the God who suffered for us. This is hugely important. There's only one explanation. Jesus wasn't just a man. He was God hanging on the cross. But alongside his divine being, alongside that, that work that God was doing on the cross, we see Jesus' thirst revealing his humanity. And make no mistake, I mean, we, we know it. Jesus was thirsty. We know it. I, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind. He's been at it for hours he was suffering. We know that the suffering went much deeper than just the physical suffering and physical toll on his body. The night before he went to the cross, he's sweating drops of blood. It says, it says that his soul was miserable. He was hurting. His body had been beaten. And he had suffered hard. He was thirsty. The scriptures have long held this tension. The, the scriptures have long held this tension of God being man. And we don't divide, we, we don't design this, 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 this doctrine from our own ideas. 
The scriptures foretold it. Isaiah wrote 700 years before Christ that he was to be the wonderful counselor, mighty God, and prince of peace. They were to call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. But on the other hand, he was to be the woman's seed. It tells us that in Genesis 3.15, right after the fall into sin, when God is providing, or, or, or not providing, but laying the curse, laying his due the, the due consequences upon his people as he lays it on them. He says, your, your seed is going to be the hope of mankind and, and, and the, the, he is going to crush the head of his enemies and the enemies are going to strike at his heel. The descendant of David was a sign of the Messiah. A descendant of David means a man, a, a king is going to rule in your place. A throne is going to be established forever. This descendant of David had to be born of a woman. And he's going to be the servant of Jehovah, the servant of God. That's in Isaiah 42. So it's in Jesus that these prophetic statements, these that, that hold intention, God coming and man being the Messiah. It's in Jesus that these are brought together and that they make sense. And in this moment on the cross, this, this, this specific, prophesied, planned, premeditated moment on the cross, I think we see it all come together. At the cross, we meet the God who suffered for us. God put on flesh, walked this earth experienced the pains and trials of this life and that he never sinned. But in his flesh, he was hated, he was condemned, he was ridiculed, and he was nailed to a cross because people wanted to rid themselves of him. This God who came to save was killed. He was the manifestation of God in flesh. Philippians, Paul tells us, Philippians 2, 6 through 7, who, and that refers back to previous context, who, speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus was God in flesh. He was fully God and fully man. And he suffered that day on the cross. And we see it physically in his thirst. And we see it spiritually in God's forsaking of him. But I think that maybe, maybe for me at least, the most, precious, the most precious statement that comes from this is that he was doing it for a purpose. When he had accomplished all that he knew needed to be accomplished, he said, I thirst. When everything was done, he said, I thirst. He had a job to do. He had a purpose in this. There was something he was seeking to accomplish. You know what that is? Well, let me say this. Jesus' thirst was showing us that he was longing for more than water. And I think we see that especially in two ways. Jesus longed to be reunited with his Father. You see, Jesus in all of eternity, and again, we don't know the depths of this mystery. We don't know how far this really goes, but, but the reality is that in all of eternal history, from the moment that time began, and I don't even know how you measure eternity before that because it never started. It just was. 
there had never been a division like this. When God humbled himself and allowed this disunity, this disruption in that close and perfect holy unity. But Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus looked forward to the moment that he was no longer despised and ridiculed by his Father. He looked forward to the moment that he sat at his right hand. He looked forward to the moment that he and his Father would be back together the way it was always before. Jesus looked forward to the moment that he knew his Father and felt the warmth of his face upon him. Jesus looked forward to the moment that his essence, that his eternal being was connected back to God the Father the way it was always intended to be. And this man on multiple occasions though, this man on multiple occasions promised a drink that would satisfy and leave people thirsting never again. You'll never be thirsty if you drink the water I have for you. You'll never thirst again. I told that story in Africa this last time I went in November. I was sitting at this, at this, uh, you can't even call it a hotel. I don't know. They call it a compromise, and it's, it's pretty rugged. But anyway, we're sitting there and this guy is telling me he's a well digger. And so we started talking about what it was to, to dig wells. And I shared the story of, of the woman at the well. And I said, you know, you know all about digging wells and how hard it is to get water. What if I could tell you that you could have a water that you would never thirst again? And this guy, who's his life, is digging wells. He's like, yeah, I want that. And, and what was funny was his friend was just kind of off in the distance, just listening half-heartedly. And as soon as I asked that question, his head whipped around. He's like, I want that water. And he didn't say it like that. Obviously, he doesn't speak English. But I want that. And he came over and he listened what Jesus can do. But Jesus, hanging on the cross, looking forward to being reunited with His Father, allowed Himself to thirst. He allowed Himself to feel it's a level of dissatisfaction, a level of disconnect, a level of longing, a level of desire that He never deserved to, to deal with. For a purpose. And Jesus, he longed for the reunited with his father, but he longed for the consummation of his work as well. The joy of being set before, his, before him is certainly being at the right hand of his father. But you know what else the joy set before him is? The consummation of all he came to do. The day that all things are made new. And his bride the church, that he loves enough that he suffered for her. Let's make it more personal. You and the people that are sitting around you that have faith in Jesus Christ. You together. He longs for the day that we sit together in his presence. No more pain. No more suffering. No more problems or trials but glory, glory, glory. Revelation 21 tells us of what that day is going to be like, verses 3 through 7. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, this is John, and he was commanded to write this down. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. No more separation, no more distance, no more wondering, is our faith real? No more doubt. 
the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. Job, in this moment, Job is suffering and he is struggling through and his friends are trying to condemn him and say, man, you must have sinned and messed up. You must have made God mad for Him to do this to you. And Job is struggling through this, trying to figure it all out, trying to work it all out in his head. His wife wants him to curse God and die. Job has so such a rich and deep faith that he says, that, and he, he proclaims it, that in my flesh I will see my God. That's the promise not just for Job, but for you. In your flesh, with your own eyes, even if you die and your body rots in the grave, there will be a day that you who have faith in Jesus Christ will stand before Him and with your own eyes see Him, with your own hands touch Him, with your own feet walk next to Him. Praise God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the things have for these things, these former things have passed away. And who, and he who was sitting on the throne said, just in case you don't know, that's Jesus. Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. John, man, you're up here seeing a lot of things you're not going to understand. Write this down. This day is coming. It is fast approaching. Write it down so my people know. And he said to me, it is done. Think back to our verse when he knew that all had been accomplished. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Listen, to the thirsty. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. You see, Jesus' joy that was set before him was certainly walking in unison with his father, but don't miss this. His joy was knowing that there's a day coming and fast approaching. And really for him, outside of time, he, you know, the day is like a, a thousand years is like a day to him. It's as real and as certain as if it's already occurred. And the joy. Jesus longs to be with you. Man. He wants to be with you. He wants to sit with you at the table in the feast, celebrating. He wants to be with you, walking close to you without the separation and the division. He wants to, to know you intimately. He already does, but He wants you to know Him intimately. He doesn't want you to know the barrier. He doesn't want you to feel the separation. He doesn't want you to feel the struggle. He doesn't want you to feel the weight. He longs for the day when it's all done. You know, everything that's wrong in our world today, wisps of smoke, just passing, light, momentary troubles. And for all eternity, this is what He came to do. That you may know Him, that He can be your God and you can be His child. That's our hope. All because He came to thirst. Because of this moment. Jesus suffered 
to end all of ours. Let's pray. God, you're good and you're gracious, and we thank you for the promise, for the hope we have because of the work you've done. We thank you for the love that sent your son. Father, we thank you for the commitment. We thank you that you suffered for us. Would you in this moment, God, just remind us to Not, not just to this truth, but the reality of what this truth means. The implications of it. Would you help us to see, God, that, that we can deal with this. We can hang on. Knowing. Knowing that there's more coming. God, we thank you and we love you. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.